This is an exciting week in the Van Horn household. We celebrate two birthdays. First, my grandson Daniel is going to be nine years old. How did that ever happen? And then I also have a birthday, and I'm going to be years old. How did that ever happen? <laughs> I want you to know that I love gift giving. I love everything about it. I like listening carefully to people throughout the years. They talk about what they might like. And then I love finding that perfect gift and wrapping it up and giving it to them and watching their surprise and delight as they open the package. And I must confess to you, I also like to give and receive gifts as well. And today someone handed me a gift and for, for me. But it says, don't open until my birthday. And I'm really good about that. Although I must admit I've been shaking and trying to guess and it's heavy and looks nice, doesn't it? Now, since I've told you I won't open it, I can't. But I'm going to put it here because as much as I love to give and to receive gifts, I want to talk today about the ultimate gift that comes from God. And I put the package here so that as you look at it, you will be reminded of God's gift to us. I want to tell you, though, a, a little story about my mother and father and the way they gave gifts because I think it's... Um, a really tender story about how they worked out getting what they would like to have. Now, my dad wasn't very good at buying gifts. Um, he would try, but never seemed to quite get the right thing. So finally, he and my mother came to an agreement. My father would give my mother money. She would go shopping for herself. She would wrap the presents, put them under the tree, and then Christmas morning, she'd open them, and my dad would be surprised. <laughs> and it all worked out very nicely. It's an, it's an idea that I would, would recommend, guys. <laughs> gifts. We like to give them. We like to receive them. Today, let's look at the gift that comes from God. Last week, Rich reminded us, as he presented his uh, sermon on the book of Galatians, that it's all about freedom. Jesus plus nothing. And it sets us free from sin. Once and for all, we can trust God we have eternal security. We don't have to earn it. It's free. It is a gift from God. For eight weeks, we've been studying Galatians. Today, I'm going to look at the very last seven verses. These are written in Paul's hand. At this point, he takes the stylus from the hands of the scribe who's been writing his letter, and he writes in bold letters the remainder of his message. I think because he wants to say, look, this is really important. It all comes down to this. It's a little like if we were to be on the computer and use bold, large font to say, listen up. This is where it all comes down to. The cross of Christ and a new creation in Christ. We've heard about what it means to live in the freedom that Christ gives us. But Paul says this is central. This is what it's all about. I'd like us to take just a minute to look at who Paul really is. If we're going to believe what he's telling us, and much of the New Testament is written by Paul, there are verses that we quote, we base our life on. Maybe we should understand who Paul was pre-conversion so that we can really listen to his words and believe them. Saul of Tarsus, 
Paul was his Roman name, was a well-educated Pharisee and a Roman citizen. And he was 100% dedicated to the outward observance of the law of Moses. He felt this was the one sure guide to following God's will. And Paul never did anything part way. He was 100% committed to this. Before his conversion, Paul regarded the church's claims about a Messiah who was crucified as sheer blasphemy and the gospel of Jesus as a scandal. Paul was known far and wide for his zealous way that he inquisited people and was persecuting the Christians. He sought to destroy the Christian faith. He didn't want to just make it small and hope that nobody would hear it. He wanted it wiped out completely. This was not a nice man. Paul felt that the end justified the means. When he uses the word, I persecuted, it means the same thing as the person who hunts for prey until they get them and then drags them back. Paul approved the stoning of Stephen, and he approved other atrocities, killing men and women. When we know that about Paul and what we've been reading over the last eight weeks, his conversion on the road to Damascus is utterly mind-boggling. It's hard to understand it. Paul was going to Damascus not to visit friends. He was going so that he could expedite his persecution of Christians. And suddenly there's a bright light that knocks him to the ground and he becomes blinded. And Christ reveals himself to Paul. He hears Jesus say, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And suddenly Paul realizes that as he has been persecuting the Christians, he has also been persecuting Jesus. Following three days of fasting and blindness, when the darkness falls from Paul's eyes, he is a believer in Jesus Christ. He got it. He now knows the truth of the gospel. And as a result, Paul was baptized and he began preaching the cross of Christ. Who could believe it? Paul's beliefs were turned upside down. Now he believed that Christians lived by the Spirit and not by the law. For Paul, God's gift of grace is the cross. Paul redirected everything in his life in order to proclaim Jesus Christ to anyone who would listen. A message of grace. Now he proclaimed Jesus Christ sets us free. Free so we can show love for God and love for one another. Because God's grace has done it all, Paul says, Jesus plus nothing. The cross. For Paul, it began with the cross and it ended with the cross. Jesus plus nothing. Jesus and the cross. Once and for all. What a gift. Paul considered himself the worst of sinners. Unable by his own power to be worthy of salvation. And he believed that Jesus died for all sinners. And those who believed in Jesus would have eternal life. Paul referred to his encounter with Christ as the beginning of his new life. And he saw the people of God as a new creation. The cross of Christ, a new creation. And Paul devoted his life from that time forward to preaching the good news, 
not adherence to the law. What a change. Only God could take the murder of Christians and turn him into the voice of the way of the cross. Think about the cross. An instrument of cruel execution is transformed into a symbol of divine love. The cross, a source of deadly pain and death, becomes a symbol of life. The cross turns everything upside down. Paul says that the cross is a stumbling block for people. Crucifixion was really reserved for slaves and for violent criminals. It was the most humiliating and degrading form of punishment and a sign of weakness and defeat. Yet now, Paul says, I boast only in the cross of Christ. It's the sign of God's power and salvation. It's a new power, he said, to overcome sin, to dispel fear, and to give freedom. Christ now lives in me. Paul has been writing to the church in Galatia because he understands that suddenly, instead of knowing that Jesus plus nothing is all that's needed, now the Galatians are saying, isn't it true that we have to have more, that somehow we have to earn our salvation? There must be some things that we have to do. Isn't it like that for us? It's really difficult for us to say, Jesus did it all. I have nothing I have to do. As I was preparing this sermon, I was reminded as a child, my mother wanted me to behave when I would go out into the community, and she had this way of assuring that I would be good if she wasn't around. She would say, now remember, Dana, God is everywhere. God sees everything. What a lot of pressure. Thank goodness, as I've studied, I've learned God is also full of grace. God doesn't require perfection. God asks us to be faithful in the living of our lives. And we have a model for how we are to live. We find the ultimate standard of Christian conduct in Jesus Christ, who gave himself for others. Therefore, we are now a new creation, and we are challenged to love. Paul reminds us that the church exists for one purpose, for the love of God and the love of neighbor. We are much blessed to be part of such a church. What a gift. A priceless treasure freely given, the gift of grace. My past forgiven, my future eternal life with the Lord secure, but the gift is also for now a present reality. Jesus' gift of love is a new creation. We can look at Paul to see what Paul as a new creation looks like, but perhaps the question is, what does the new creation look like for us? Paul made such a big transformation. We want that kind of a transformation, don't we? We want the old to immediately be gone and the new to spring forth right away. That kind of transformation happened for me this summer when I went off-site to do a wedding. 
I had parked my car in the valet parking, and after the wedding, I went out and gave my receipt to the parking attendant, and he went off and suddenly came around in a car, and he got out, and he looked at me, and now I want you to know I drove in to that parking lot in a 2002 black Ford Escape with 116,000 miles on it. He brought me a 2008 silver Lexus. It's a miracle. It was a wedding, and at a wedding, Jesus turned water into wine. I thought, oh my word, he turned my escape into a Lexus. Unfortunately, I didn't get to go home in that car, but the nice fellow, when he brought my car around and opened the door, and as I was getting in, he said with a nice smile on his face, well, this is a nice car, too. That's the way we want transformation to happen. Over the years of studying the Bible, I've encountered numerous scriptures that speak about love. Not surprising since love is a dominant theme of the New Testament. What is surprising is the number of people who protest against so much emphasis on love. They suggest more should be said about the responsibility of persons to do things that will make them more lovable. You know, so they'll be less full of evil and sin. Charlie Brown puts it well, I love humanity. It's people I can't stand, he says. <laughs> My only comment is that love seems to be the very foundation of the new life in Christ. Here once again, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It doesn't say, for God so hated the world. It doesn't say God was so disgusted with the world that he was ready to throw in the towel. No, it says, God so loved the world. The way of love is God's way. Now, I'm the first to admit that loving is not easy. It's hard work. It needs to be intentional. It needs the spirit of Christ within us to make loving others, whether they're worthy or not, possible. One time I had a couple in my office who had been married 30 years, and the wife said, he never says he loves me. And the husband's response was, I told her I loved her the day I married her, and things have not changed. She needed to hear that she was loved in words and in actions. Our human perspective on love, that it has to be earned, is just not sufficient for the new life in Jesus Christ. We must look to God's example, not to the world. The kind of love described with such care in 1 Corinthians 13, a favorite of weddings, is a good model for how we are to love. It says, love is patient and kind. It is not envious or resentful or rude. It does not seek to manipulate to get its own way. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. One time as I finished reading that passage, the groom said, ouch, that sounds tough. To live by the Spirit inwardly leads to being guided by the Spirit in our outer behavior. Our lives will bear fruit and show that we abide in love, not as new rules that we have to follow, but a desire to love 
because we understand the gift that God has given us in Jesus Christ. When couples hear how they're to love one another, they often shake their heads and wonder if they're able to do that. You might be wondering if you are able to love that way. So I encourage the couple as well as I would encourage you, worship often, pray often, serve the Lord to grow and deepen your love for God, for yourself and for others. There really is no other way than this. God remind, Paul reminded his readers and reminds us only Christ can bring about a new creation. The law of Christ, the law of love demands that Christians help one another. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. There is no such thing as a solitary Christian. We must be in community. The cross is God's ultimate gift. Sin is the second greatest force in the world. The love of God is the only force that is stronger. When we get it, when we really understand the cross of Christ, the gospel, the good news, the ultimate gift of grace, we can do nothing else but be grateful. Our gratefulness is the new creation, and we become the people of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ radically transforms those who come to faith in Christ. Paul's life demonstrates this truth. Was Paul interested in becoming a Christian? How many ways can we say no? The only explanation for such a transformed life as Paul's is an act of the grace of God. Paul was the first to admit it had to be God's doing. God could and did make a difference for Paul. God could and did make a difference for us. Oh, it's so hard to grasp that kind of love. We want to say yes, but certainly there's something else. But John 3.16 says no, it's a gift of grace. It's true, isn't it? We really are not worthy. I should get into heaven because I'm a good person, but then I have to decide how good is good enough. How good would we have to be to earn Jesus' death and salvation? And the answer is we never could be. Paul says, Jesus only. All my trust in Jesus only. Salvation by grace through faith plus nothing. Friends, God's love is the heartbeat of the gospel. And the gospel is the finished work of Christ. So what does a new creation look like? How does it think and act? What is to be new? We have a new relationship with God based on forgiveness and reconciliation. And so we have the Peltons who have gone to Sierra Leone to work with the amputees. That's how they're responding to this gift of God. We have a new desire to know God's truth, what he says, what it means, how it applies. So we have Lynn Ogata who has gone to Cambodia to bring hope and healing to the people there that have experienced so many atrocities. We have new priorities of eternal things. We have an eternal agenda. It doesn't end here, folks. It begins here. Be heavenly-minded. 
My friend Nancy's mother died a year ago, and as she was anticipating the year anniversary of her mother's death, she was sad and wondered what it would be like to approach that day. Matthew, her nine-year-old son, who very strong in his faith, even at nine years old, on that day of the anniversary, came running downstairs in the morning and said to his mom, Oh, mom, it's a day to celebrate. This is the day that grandma went to heaven. Eternal agendas, new relationships with other people, loving them through crisis as our deacons do, the power to live God's way. We might think it sounds tough, but God says, I will help you. I will give you grace. I will give you the Holy Spirit to help you be new each and every day. For Paul and for us, the cross of Christ is everything. It's not just a symbol. It changes everything, the world and you and me. The truth is most people aren't converted by sermons or by Sunday school lessons, although these plant seeds. But most people come into the faith because somebody looked them in the eye and showed them a changed life, a new creation. What a gift. The nature of God is to love. The nature of God is to be a source of grace and life. The way of Christ is the cross, and the way of the cross is a new creation. The cross of Christ. A great, joyful, meaningful, fulfilling life is ours when we discover the freedom and the promise that is a new creation. It is the very nature of God to love us. And I think it's a good way to end this sermon series with this challenge to love. Be more loving. Be the Father's love. As you look at Jesus Christ, love that way. This is the greatest commandment, Jesus said. Love your neighbor as yourself.